Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for Resolve Dash Masterclass. Everybody here? Hey, Homer, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you all doing? Great. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. So, yeah, we're going to, I hope that was an interesting introduction to what uh, we're going to talk about today, the uh, areas of Homer's expertise. Uh, but before we do begin, just a little bit of housekeeping. You know, we're going to talk about a wide ranging set of topics here on the private wealth side, on the investment side. You know, do not take this as advice. Please do talk to a professional advisor if you want to act on anything here. Um, this is just for informational purposes only. And um, but we are, you know, both Homer and uh, Resolve do have services that span this area. If you want, if you want to go visit Homer on his website, there's a couple of things that we're going to highlight today. You know, uh, you can always go to his uh, website, which Homer helped me out here is convergentwealth.com. Um, right. with a K, convergent with a K. And uh, Homer's also written a very interesting book that is uh, going to be live very soon, Making Smart Decisions, How Ultra-Wealthy Families Get Superior Wealth Planning Results. Um, and Homer, is this already out there for people to read if they want to, or are we still waiting for the final copy? It'll be released shortly. Uh, we're making a, one minor edit to the cover. As you can see, there's one little uh, error we needed to fix, but uh, but it'll be released soon. This one, this book isn't um, like a previous book we did, not really released for the masses. It's a very narrow book, so we'll definitely have it available if anybody needs it. Um, uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it should be released in the next week or so. Congratulations. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah. I know how hard it is to write a book like that. Yeah. Um, we, we've been working uh, closely with Homer for a couple of years now, less on the, yeah. what we're going to talk about today, which is, I have a lot of interest in, and we talked a little bit about it. It was really fascinating how you kind of built out the business and shifted that to, uh, to where you're at right now with the ultra wealthy. But, uh, we're also going to talk a little bit about portfolio construction. I think we worked really closely on all weather portfolios and how that kind of shifted the way you dealt with, uh, well, so we're going to cover that topic as well. Uh, we have plenty of, of 
the all-terrain, all-weather um, literature, both on Homer's site and at investorsall.com. If anybody wants to go and read some more on that, you can just go to that website and look up uh, all-terrain or all-weather, just some blog posts that we did on those topics. Um, but Homer, why don't we begin with you? Uh, give us a little bit of your background. Uh, tell us what... Uh, uh, you know, how you evolved into the role that you're in today and uh, what you're interested in right now. Yeah, great. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, love working with you guys and, and love your research. And and uh, as, as you've kind of already shared, uh, it's been instrumental in how we've constructed our philosophy in the last few years around wealth management. So just uh, happy to be here and, and really appreciate everything that you all do. So, um, so with that, yeah, so I started my career actually... Um, uh, interestingly enough, the week of 9-11, uh, 2001. So uh, graduated college, got my licenses, went into work, got my stack of leads. And like something like three days later, 9-11 uh, happened and wondered, did I make <laughs> did I make the right choice? Uh, were people going to be interested in this? And uh, something I found relatively early in my career and that people continue to tell me to this day, it, it's somewhat unconscious, I guess, but I I was very good at taking very complex things and quieting noise and, and helping people just understand the decisions they need to make um, in those sorts of times. And so in spite of all those challenges, um, you know, 22 years old, starting a career in wealth management, um, I did pretty well and quickly went into leadership roles. So in addition to building my own practice, I started coaching and developing other 22-year-old kids out of college and, and, and also older uh, second career people on how to be a financial advisor and eventually went into management. So I built a whole team. I ended up moving to Hawaii for a few years, running a branch for a large broker dealer out there. I had to give up all of my clients to do that and kind of thought I was going to go in this corporate route. Um, and after two and a half years of that, I realized that that wasn't for me. And we were pretty successful um, in what we did out there. But I realized that uh, hurting a bunch of cats in our industry really wasn't what I really loved doing. I loved working with individual families. And so right. went back into wealth management, moved back to Seattle um, area, restarted my practice. And my first um, foray back home was I built a relationship with a CPA firm and started helping them build out a wealth management offering for their clients. They really saw the benefits of that collaboration between tax and wealth management. And I quickly realized, although I'd never really worked with them much before that, that all of their best clients were private business owners. My challenge right. was, how do I bring value to them? Uh, you know, they didn't typically have millions of dollars of liquid wealth. It was tied up in their business. You know, they had 20 different professionals they were dealing with. And I just saw the, the stress, the pain and said, okay, I got to figure out how to bring value to them. And if I can solve that, uh, that's, that's going to be valuable. Um, and so I spent 10 years really learning that world, getting exit planning designations, starting a growth strategy firm and incorporating growth to exit into my practice and, and really just educating myself and going to school on business owners and their needs, their challenges. And also, you know, did a lot of research through the groups that, that I'm a part of, mastermind groups I'm a part of, that if you think about the wealth in our country, uh, for families with over 25 million of wealth, a vast, vast majority of them are private business owners. And so for me, it's like, okay, well, I already like solving their problems and they're the wealthiest people in this in the country. Um, that's definitely a good target. Uh, market to focus on. Um, and what part of what I built was, you know, most wealth managers love to be there, like when a business owner sells, and the, the liquidity event is coming, they just get to come in, manage the wealth, do some estate planning with them and call it good. 
while I would love mm-hmm. to do that every time as well, uh, what I decided was I, I want to be on the front end of that. I want to be helping them five years, 10 years in advance. There's a lot more things I thought we could do to help them you know, create a better outcome. And so, you know, really over the last three, four years, we've really expanded that focus on this building this virtual family office approach. And how do we, from day one of working with a business owner, make sure that every facet of their life has been addressed, optimized. So if and when they get to that ultimate exit event, you know, everything's already set up, ready to go. And, you know, from a business standpoint, there's no competition. Uh, when I've done all of that work for them um, at that stage, I'm not competing with three or four other firms. You know, it's it, those assets are coming my way. You know, it's actually quite interesting because I, I would say, you know, I started as a private wealth advisor and I focused 99.99% of my energy on trying to create the best portfolio ever and getting everybody in the wealthiest families to, to buy into a, a, you know, all terrain, all weather approach. And I just, that's what I thought they wanted. And what I realized, obviously, I think what we all realized is that what the people that want that are advisors. Yeah. And the wealthy want something very different that I personally wasn't willing to give. Uh, it just wasn't in my interest. Uh, so I think, but I think a lot of advisors fall into that trap and possibly have a, a lack of growth because of it. So how, how, how much time do you have to spend up front in order to see the fruits of your labor and, and how do the ultra wealthy, you, you talked a little bit about it, but how do they defer from managing somebody who's, you know, more in the median uh, wealth range? Yeah. So the way that we approach it and, and how I think we get to that outcome where we can manage the money and introduce our philosophy and, and they get it is, you know, when I'm talking to a client, we, we focus a lot on taxes. You know, we're not CPAs. We, you know, we don't, we don't help them file taxes or like necessarily do tax planning, but we do a lot of work around taxes. And as we're sharing them different solutions or ideas, say, okay, if, if you implement some of these ideas and, and they work and, and we can save you, you know, 10 or $20 million in taxes over the next 30 to 40 years of our relationship, how long would I have to be like the best investment advisor in the world, outperform the market by 1% um, to make up and do better than the taxes I just saved you? And the answer is like, never, like, you know, it's just, it's almost impossible to do that. And, and once they really get it, that what we're really focused on is this entire wealth approach and looking at all, all of those different areas, the investments really do become not, I wouldn't, they're not an afterthought. I don't want to make it seem that unimportant to them, but <clears throat> for it, we just finished a, a situation where we helped a business owner sell their business, family, four generation family business. They had a, an advisor prior to me coming in, but we walked them through the value of the pre-sale planning we would do for them. Two months before the sale, they're like, "All this, you're going to help us manage all this money, right? Like, I hadn't even talked about our investment philosophy. I haven't mentioned a single fund or anything we would do. But they're like, you're going to manage all this for us, right? And then the wire came in you know, a week ago. And we're just now, after the money's already landed... We're just now talking about, okay, here's the actual specific investments we're going to do for you. And it's six months after we started the engagement. So, so that's the, I think the difference for families with that kind of wealth and complication is the taxes, estate planning, family planning, business succession are, are much more hot buttons for them, keeping them up at night. The investments yeah. are partly because a lot of them have a big portfolio before we start working with them. So it, they just don't even know what's, they should be thinking about and asking about in that world. Right. And, and Adam, yeah. Mike, you guys just came from a big um, conference, the 
Oh my God. Remind me step. Last step. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't you walk? Because that's, 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 that's what society opening. of trust and estate planners. And yeah. I think so, Adam was there is, presenting on machine learning. And you yeah, did that he, just now before? Just no? now. Did it today as well. As well? He did it again for a step conference here. Not on machine learning. They don't give a shit about machine learning. You know what I mean. <laughs> Large language on, on AI and language models, yeah. <laughs> and I think you presented it with Homer as well at one point. But why don't you, what, are you, what did you guys see? What, type, what are the families that were there? And what did they care about? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's their advisors that are there. Um. And I'm not sure I know what they care about. I, I'm just going to ask Homer to actually dig a little deeper from the standpoint. Okay, you got tax. And then, you know, you have a million, three million, five million. You could run out of money. You have 50 million, 150 million, 250 million. It's really hard to run out of money. Yeah. So psychologically, things change. And there's a, there's, in, I think there's a different, perception of priorities beyond taxation. And I wonder if you might sort of dig deeper into that on, on topics like maybe security or, you know, um, security of their assets, security of their family. There's a, there's a number of things in there that, that, you know, you know, we, we gleaned a little bit of at the step conference, but not yeah. really fully getting into kind of, we got taxes, the big one planning and legacy. Those, but there's also a bunch of other kind of, items that are very important to them, but they're not related to investing at all. And I, I wonder if you might kind of dig in and share some of those, you know, maybe less commonly known psychological sort of worries that folks of that wealth level experience. Yeah, I would say uh, most of our clients are founder-led business owners. And so I think there's something to that psychology. We don't work with a lot of second, third generation wealthy families. And I think they have a very different mentality when it comes to their wealth. Um, so the families that we typically deal with started, typically started from not very much. And then they, entrepreneurs built their wealth. They now have wealth that they never had. Their kids grew up starting probably pretty poor, but now have, you know, by the last teens into their twenties had had a lot better lives didn't have to go through what their parents went through. And so our experience is they're very concerned about how the wealth will impact the future generations. And they are very family focused. Uh, they want their family to be okay. They're worried about where the world is going and is there going to be the same opportunities for their kids and grandkids. And I think a lot of, of data out there is saying, you know, I think millennials for the first time at this stage of their lives are not doing better than their parents were at that stage of their lives. So I think that concern is real. Um, so they're very concerned about that, but they're also, they don't want their kids to be trust fund babies. They don't want them to grow up expect, expecting the family well to just take care of them. They want them to have some of the drive that, that, that they had, which is you know difficult um, at times to bridge. And so how they set up the structures for the wealth to go to the, the next generations in a way that's positive and impactful and not destructive, that's really, really important to them. They've also lived through, you know, the last 30, 40 years where, you know, family separations have been very common. And so they don't want their wealth leaving their family um, in the future, even now or in the future. So how do we protect the assets from leaving the family? 
And then, you know, we're highly litigious society. So how do we try to insulate this wealth from being unjustly taken through, you know, frivolous lawsuits and creditors and things of that nature? So we, we spend a lot of our time, a lot of time walking them through the different ways that they can structure this for themselves, their family, um, from a estate planning asset protection standpoint. So I would say that dominates a lot of the conversations that we have. Um, the next one I'd say biggest area, especially if they haven't sold yet, is is business succession planning and whether they want to keep it in the family or ultimately do a future outright sale. We spend a, an immense amount of time helping them think through that. But I'd say the family planning is, is almost always top of mind um, when we start. Yeah, you, you can do anything but not nothing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And why would you want to deprive your kids of the opportunity to cut your teeth and actually achieve something you know, versus a trust fund type, type yeah. baby, because uh, my experience is the entrepreneurs really kind of um, enjoyed that portion of their life. And so they're caught in this sort of catch 22 of how do I engage my kids like I was engaged, but also have them realize that money's not an issue. Yes. Yeah. And, and also I see a lot of them recognize not every one of their kids is going to be the risk-taking entrepreneur that they were and they want to support if they want to be a teacher in the arts, whatever it might be, they want to support it. They just want to make sure that they can't do it without still having to do something on their own. Right. And then ha- earn some level of a living um, and not just purely live off of you know, a paycheck from the trust. Right. So what, kind, so does, of, um, what kind of special training or knowledge does it take to differentiate in this space? It strikes me that it's not just investment advisors that that are sort of looking to serve clients in that yeah. in that category, right? You've got sort of got people on the legal side, you've got people on the accounting side, and you got people on the investment side. How do you how did you think about differentiating your services, um, sort of? specializing or having you know differentiated registrations on the investment side not not making an investment forward but knowing that you're competing against people that have you know professional designations on in some of the other dimensions how did you think about that going into it yeah so part of it what what i recognize is most of these wealthy families are not looking for me they likely have a me if you know at that kind of wealth, they have advisors all over the place, and that was the first thing that I you kind of had to learn to recognize is um, it's it actually would be more shocking if they didn't have a financial advisor. And so, what I recognized the approach really needed to be is is who are the people that they most rely on and trust, and it's typically their CPA, accountant, or it's their attorney. And so, the differentiation in the conversation that we do is is much more focused on differentiating ourselves with their most trusted professionals and not necessarily with the the individual client themselves. I mean, we build a lot of content so that when they inevitably get introduced to us, we know they're going to go to our website and they're going to check us out. And so we want our content to speak to them. And so I think we do content that's not just investment focus. It's very much this family office focus, but, um, but our, our real, most of my energy is spent actually speaking to and differentiating with, the key professionals that they would be working with. And the main differentiation there is, you know, uh, in that world, they get pitched by advisors all the time. And they, they could literally, they could probably fill up their entire week just having advisors come by and pitch their 
their process. And, and what we also know is it's very hard to tell the difference. I could tell the bet to, to Rodrigo's point earlier, I could tell the best all weather story ever. And they would love it and think it was great until the next advisor came in and told their story and be like, oh, that's, that's great too. And how do I, how do I pick, how do I send clients to one versus the other? They can't tell the difference. And so we don't do that at all. Um, and so when I come in, I ask them about their practice. I ask them about uh, the types of clients they work with. Where did they get them? Um, how, would you like as a, you know, a professional, do you, are you wanting to grow your business and, and move up market and serve more of your best clients? And I, I focus almost all of my energy on helping them better serve their clients and help, you know, go ahead, ready to go. How do you do that? Like, what is, yeah. what is the tool set you bring to them? That's, that's interesting. Yeah. So, um, a couple of things first, you know, you know, uh, I don't know how as much it works in Canada, uh, but in the United States, we have these crazy filing deadlines for taxes and CPAs who work in that space, that higher net worth business owner space, um, I would say it's not the most attractive world for someone coming out of college to want to work, you know, hundred hour weeks for months at a time, two times a year uh, to get through their deadlines. And so they're having, I would say, challenges with staffing and bringing in new talent into their world. And so um, they're, they, they have to end up focusing almost all their energy on compliance, even though they'd love to do more tax planning with their clients. It's just difficult uh, for them to have the time to do it. And so a lot of our focus is how do we help you identify those planning areas where we want to keep you at the center of it. We're, you know, we're a resource for you, but we can help you identify some of these advanced planning areas that your clients aren't currently taking advantage of and that you can bring that idea to them and you can be the hero to them. And we can even teach you how to increase your fees to justify the work that you'll do for them. And so that's a bit, you know, so as an example, like, well, you know, We'll talk to the CPA and say, think of a business owner that's got like 30 or fewer clients that's doing really well and would like to reduce their overall taxes. Can you think of one? Don't, you know, don't tell us names. Just can you picture one in your mind? Yeah, yeah, I can think of one. If we could help you implement a strategy that would save them half a million dollars a year in taxes, would they be interested? Yes. What would you charge them to help them implement that solution that would save them half a million dollars a year? Well, how many hours would it take me? It doesn't matter. If you could save them half a million dollars, what would you charge them? They, you know, they never have a great answer. They say, well, the CPAs that are doing this successfully are typically charging a project fee of like thirty to $40,000 to do this. And the business owners don't even blink. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, and helping them think around their fees from an hourly billing to, you know, value-based pricing. Um, it, it's, we're, we help them start to shift their thinking on that. And that you don't have to do all the work. We'll do all the work behind the scenes for you and help you implement it. You just have to be the value provider, bringing the idea to them. And it's not a handoff. You're not handing them off to us to go do this for you. Otherwise, you can't charge that fee, but we'll help you do it, right? We'll help you implement it. Um, you know, or, you know, do you, have a, do you have clients that have dynasty trusts or recently sold their business that have significant wealth and they're paying a million dollars a year or more in just investment taxes on dividends, interest, those sorts of things. You know, if we could help you help them implement a structure that would shelter all that income from tax forevermore and pass to the next generation tax-free, would, would they be interested? And, th- and that's amazing because that's a guiltless service yeah. that they're incentivized because it's a, 
number one, it's probably a lot of work. It's probably um, a, a solution that's that has demonstrable results, and they get to have they get to have the portion of, uh, of whatever they end up charging as a as like almost like you're selling a product, yeah, without any guilt and with. Um, uh, an incentive for them to continue to find opportunities to provide that service to more of their clients versus exactly. keep a client. That's interesting. Yeah. So, and what we find with CPAs in particular is when we talk to their clients, they want their CPA to be the source of tax ideas. Right. They, but they usually come from their attorney, their financial advisor, their friend at another business down the street that told them about something they're doing. And then they bring these ideas to their accountant. The accountant will validate it or not if it's not a good fit but they're not proactively bringing these ideas as often as the, as the clients would like. And so we're trying to help them solve that. We want to help them be the ones bringing the ideas to their clients. And, and, you know, obviously our incentive is if, if we do that and it ultimately, if there's a wealth management introduction or solution that comes out of the back end of that, we'd like to be the source for it. Um, but we don't, obligate them to that. We're going to help them identify those, whether or not we're going to be the solution. Because as I mentioned earlier, they usually have people like us working with those clients. And that's usually their first objection. Well, they've got a financial advisor, so I can't really introduce you. And like, that's fine. We'll help you do the planning. And lo and behold, a lot of times those advisors can't implement the solutions that we're helping them identify. They're either too complex, their broker dealer doesn't allow it. They admit this has happened many times. We'll start partnering with the advisor and they admit they can't do it and they want us to do it instead. And, and we'll collaborate um, with that advisor, with the family and not take their business from them, but just work with them. And so um, that's a big part of, I think of, of we're very transparent about it. We're not, we're not here. We're, we, we're not doing this only in, in return for doing the business. We're, we're going to help you identify solutions that have no wealth management outcome to them, but they're going to make you look good. And so that's, that's a big point. And the same thing so, with the attorneys. So it sounds like you sort of hinted at this, right? Their advisor may not be equipped to do this. Like they may not have the infrastructure or they not, may not be set up to do this. So let me pull on that a little bit. So how do you set up your practice to have maximum flexibility to deliver the solutions that that segment of the wealth um, distribution requires in a way that, you know, people that, that are catering to sort of, let's say the mass affluent often just can't do, they don't have the, their, their yeah. practice is not structured to facilitate that. Yeah. So I'll start a little bit higher level. And, and a lot of the things that we talk to the, the accountants and attorneys about, um, they're not unique because, you know, we're highly regulated just like you all are. And so anything that we would be recommending to a client or a CPA or a, an attorney, um, uh, anybody else technically could, right? Because if it's in the code, if it's in our reg regulatory environment, anybody could do it. Um, but what I will say is what we do is rare. And, and what I mean by that is, and it comes you know, in the book as well, is you know, what we've basically done is we have gone to the family office world and through professionals that we work with that are living in that space, um, those families with their, you know, when they have a full-time staff of accountants and attorneys working for them, they scour the tax code and legal code for advantages. And once they find them and the IRS fights them and they win or whatever happens, what, they're, they're now in the code, right? And we know that they work. Um, and so what we basically focused a lot of our energy on is taking the best ideas from that space that they've discovered and spent a lot of money on and identify, well, where do these apply to everybody, right? Mass affluent on up. And many of them do. 
and not all of them do, but many of them do. But it just t- takes some time and energy to learn all of those solution strategies. And then to kind of to your other point, like the broker dealers that are more focused on a mass affluent client, which for good reason, there's more of them um, because of their compliance uh, requirements, just don't allow their advisors to implement some of these solutions because they're complex and they just don't want the risk of an of a inexperienced advisor implementing a, a very complex solution and screwing it up. And I had, to, I had to discover that myself. I had to move from a more restrictive platform to a more independent platform where I knew I could you know, implement, or at least I could, even if I couldn't implement it directly, I could go find and work with the groups that could, where even in some spaces in the broker-dealer world, you're not even allowed to go partner and even suggest a client do some of these things from a compliance standpoint. And so I had to be in a platform where I, I knew I could you know, be that fiduciary and independent, you know, independent voice for a client and, and get these solutions in place. So what are some of these um, more complex structures or solutions that maybe work extremely well for a narrow segment of the population and that most others wouldn't have heard of because, you know, they, they just wouldn't be a good fit? Yeah, I'd say the one that we've gotten the most traction on is private placement life insurance. and. You know, I think a lot of wealthy families are are just exhausted from insurance salespeople and and for probably for good reason. There's a lot of people that start in our industry in insurance sales and and, and not that I think you know permanent insurance, whole life or universal life aren't good and the right solution. I just think if that's your only solution, then it's the solution for every need a client has and then it gets oversold and and that's you know every every industry has those types of things. And so I think wealthy families are very wary of life insurance because they've just been pitched it so much. And so are their professionals. And so when you first hear private placement life insurance, it, it can cause a few just um, flags that come up because, oh, it's, it's insurance. You're just selling me insurance. But private placement, and, and I don't know how much work you guys have done on this, but it's a very particular kind of life insurance that uh, again, was vetted by family offices. They spent a lot of money to create these structures where you can actually have a lot more flexibility on your investment structure. So instead of just getting the 20 funds the life insurance company gives you with high fees, um, as well as huge premiums and fees and and commissions that come with the product itself, all of that gets changed with private placement. So all the fees and commissions get stripped out um, and to the bare minimum. It's very cost effective. Um, and then if you can invest a minimum amount, typically 10 million or more, you can then have your investment advisor, you know, build you a custom portfolio that you wouldn't be able to create. And you can include things like private equity or venture capital or private credit or managed futures and more esoteric investments that you couldn't get access to um, inside of a, a traditional life insurance policy. You couldn't do all weather. You couldn't do return stacking inside of a traditional life insurance policy. If a client is interested in that kind of an investment philosophy, we can now deliver that for them, both at the retail and institutional level inside of private placement. You're muted. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess this is where we get into kind of the moat of this kind of business proposition, right? Because when I looked at private placement life insurance, and that's, you know, there's variable annuity as well. It, there was a few things. Number one, the insurance company needs to want to work with you. Yes. As an 
because they're not they they need to know that your client base is wealthy enough where they're going to be putting in 10 million 50 million dollar 100 million dollar tickets that's who they deal with right so it's just really tough to be part of the gang be part of the team that can actually do that and then even if you do find a, a, a someone that's willing to work with you it also then you have to you have to show them the portfolio you want and they have to be willing to accept the portfolio you want to implement yeah, that's another hurdle that you have to get, and it has to go through approval processes. So, yeah. you know, there's a few parts that need to be in place for you to be able to have your full offering. And, you know, I did I did a full dive. Wes Gray introduced me to it ten years ago. He yeah. did a full dive and just felt like, oh my god, it's a, it's a lot of work. I'll just go back to doing my uh, my meat and potatoes type of uh, business. So it it does take a a long time, a lot of effort to get what you wanted. And I think you, so. What you've created this that allows you to do all of your investment strategies at the same time how yeah. long that you? it's uh about a year probably to go through and work with the insurance companies get approval for our RIA, build the portfolio submit them to the states because yeah, each each state that you mostly it's you know we use certain states because of the the, the cost effectiveness of them but then they have to approve each state you might do a policy and has to approve the portfolios and and then even before that, I mean, again, that's, this is a kind of a product solution, but I'd say that, so that's one that is definitely one of the more ones that most of our competition just can't do, can't implement. Maybe they've heard of it. They've read some white papers about it. Sounds really good, but they, they just can't implement it. And so they don't talk about it. And so the way it comes up, so back to the client conversation, we're not just opening up a client conversation and say, Hey, let's do some private placement. Um, it's you, again, they usually have an advisor. And so the question will be something like, so, you know, what is your current advisor doing to reduce your overall taxes on your investment portfolio? And there's like one answer or two answers. You can probably guess them, but it's municipal bonds and it's tax loss harvesting. Tax loss harvesting. Yeah. And so I'll, I'll ask them, so what are they doing to help you save, reduce taxes when you actually make money in your portfolio? And they, it's like, what do you mean? Like, well, there isn't, you know, you, and so that's where it kind of do, you know, can evolve into that conversation of, yes, tax loss harvesting is great, but most years the market goes up. Um, and so it's not like you have that many opportunities over time to do tax loss harvesting. We need a solution that works all the time. Um, and it can introduce investment um, categories that you might not have considered because of the tax structuring of them. They just wouldn't have made sense in your non-qualified portfolio, things that are less tax efficient. We don't have to worry about tax efficiency in this structure. So it opens the entire world of investment solutions that may have been just put on the shelf because it was a taxable account. And they're in a high tax state like California, where we work with a lot of clients. It's like ah, anything with an ordinary income hit to it. It's just not not going to be overly uh, interested. Right. And their CPA in particular isn't going to very much like that. So um so, so yeah, so it, it, it's always coming from a, a planning conversation, a tax planning conversation, or it's an estate planning. Oh, you got all this money sitting in this dynasty trust that's never going to be touched for 20 or 30 years. Why would you have taxes being, you know, realized in there? Why don't we put this in a structure that can never be taxed again? Um, and, and if we structure it correctly. And so um, it's usually it's it's always around some sort of a planning conversation that it ultimately comes up. Do they in that in that structure? They also benefit from uh, like the privacy of it too. I mean, I think that's is is that the case? 
Well, that, for, for example, a will or a trust or these types of things are documents that are filed and, and public documents can be looked up sure. and also challenged. So is, is that something that comes as a priority or is that something that is, is effective? The, the, in this the idea of that is very important. So we do a lot of asset protection planning where we're setting up structures when, you know, when they pass away or transferring assets, it is less public. And then if you own something like private placement inside of that, it just obviously adds um, it's just a part of that mix, but private placement by itself isn't, um, doesn't really provide so much of that, but if it's put in the right structures, it can, it does life insurance, generally speaking, even traditional whole life, universal life has more asset protection features to it. So there is some benefit to that uh, by itself, but it really is powerful inside of a, a family trust. That's, you know, dynasty planning or something like that. Now, is a lot of this fairly uniform across the United States, or are we looking at wildly different solutions per state? Uh, I'd say the general strategies are the same. They're more powerful in high-tax states. So, right. I mean, I, I love working with clients in California, New York. I mean, they're in the Northeast pretty much in general. Yeah, Jersey. Yeah, they're... It, these solutions just are, they're just more powerful, right? There's more leverage in the tax benefits to them because of how bad the, the income taxes are. But then there's other states, like I live in Washington state, we don't have an income tax, um, but we have the worst estate tax in the country. And so we do a lot of the work. There's actually a lot more need for estate planning in Washington state than most other states because the threshold for when you kick into that is much, much lower than the federal level. And so, you know, it's under, that's a part of it too, is understanding all of those components where, you know, for each state that you're working in, what is going to be the more powerful planning conversation um, when it comes to those things. One of, one of the things I think we've run into a few times, and, and maybe this solves for it as well, but, you know, if it's a real estate family, they love real estate. And they if do. it's a business family in <laughs> some sort of area of business, they love that vertical. If they're in Texas, it's probably oil and gas. If they're in California, it might be more technology related. Yeah. And they tend to look for, they're, they're, they're sort of business people who feel they have business acumen. So deal or specific type mindset tends to sometimes infiltrate or, you know, sort of narrow the scope of investing is, is that something that, that, we're experiencing that's, you know, in, in our tertiary experience, this is that real, is it not real? And does the structures that you set up actually account for that and say, yeah, you can still do that in the structure. No problem. You want to put it in there, you put it in there and, and we're good to go. And it's, it's yeah. tax deferred, et cetera. What, what are your thoughts there? That's a great question. We, um, so we work with a, a, a near billionaire real estate family in California, loves real estate, will only invest in real estate, you know, and every time they get any sort of big liquidity buildup, it's to buy another building. They're not like we've never even talked to them about invested portfolios. But you know, one of the key themes that we find across the board is these wealthy families, and really the theme of the book that we wrote is these ultra wealthy families are not well served by their professionals, not intentionally, and that each one in their own silo might be doing generally okay, but things get missed, even at that you know, 500 million billion dollar level. So this family, um, at, when we were introduced to them, we, you know, you asked me, well, what's your estate plan? Have you, when was the last time you updated your estate plan? Oh, we did it like a couple of years ago. Okay, well, let's take a look at it. Um, they had done real, no real, what I call real estate planning. They haven't done anything to get any assets out of their estate. 
And so all 750 million assets are in their estate. And should they unfortunately pass away tomorrow, it's like a $300 million estate tax bill. And they own real estate. So it's not like they just sell it and liquidate it tomorrow and the cash is there to pay the tax. That's a problem for the family. Um, And so while our work with them, we've been hired basically to come in and help them evaluate what are all of the different options that they can do over the next 20 years to try to, at the worst, freeze their estate. So any future growth happens out of the estate or, or, and then even hopefully more is how can we slowly, but surely over time, be able to remove some of those assets from their estate. Um, But we know from day one, we are not ever going to get an investment account with them likely. Um, And so our planning is much more on, and we charge instead of, you know, an asset management, we charge a monthly retainer to put, the process in place, put the team in place to help them do that. And that engagement will end at some point where we may, we're not likely to be needed forever for that family, but it's really complex stuff and it's really fun stuff to work on. And I learn every time we take on an engagement like that, we learn more nuances on real estate or whatever industry they're in. It's a learning opportunity for me while we're bringing that value to that family. And, and lo and behold, I know everybody have a question, but one crazy thing that came up is they're so busy being really good at real estate that all of their cash was just sitting in a, in a checking account. And they had like, you know, millions and millions of dollars. And, and, oh my and God. we basically helped them create like an extra million dollars a year of income just from managing their cash better. Um, so it's a little crazy. stuff. Yeah. So, so, so can you tell me a little bit about how the federal government sees real estate? Like if, if tomorrow the, the whoever, you know, that somebody passes away, are they, is real estate seen as a liquid asset that can be sold or yes. is it seen, it is. So they would have to come up with the dough in a, so there's a, there's a in the U S tax code. There's a, there's a code section that allows for private businesses to defer out the estate tax and pay it over a 10, really a 14 year period, but, but they can basically defer that out. Uh, real estate. If you own it, like if you own just a bunch of multifamily properties, they don't look at that as a business they look at that as you can sell any one of those properties at any time and not affect the overall business itself. And so there are ways that you can uh, navigate that though. And it's, if you know, the, one of the biggest questions is do you own a management company? And so there's a management company managing all of those assets and that, and that's, it's not a surefire, but that in that case, the business is actually the management company. The real estate is incidental to the management company and they'll much more likely look at that as a business, but if you outsource all of your management to outsource management companies, we've seen um, uh, court cases where they say, no, you you don't get the deferral, you've got to pay it now. Wow. Yeah, so there's lots of tax benefits for real estate ownership, but uh, the estate tax code is not friendly uh, in that sense. Speaking of not friendly, sorry, speaking of not friendly, um, how have you observed the, um, the tax and regulatory environment evolve over time to make this more challenging for, for wealthy families to be able to, uh, implement the kinds of protections that, yeah, that's a great question. So what, what we typically see happen is, you know, a, a smart family will in their, in their professionals will identify an advantage in the tax code 
and they will implement a solution. It'll get fought by the IRS. They'll win, you know, they'll get a letter or it's in the code. Um, and then uh, other smart professionals will hear about it and then they will turn it into a marketing scheme and they will probably even, um, I would say, be more aggressive with that solution than was intended to the point where the IRS finally comes around and says, well, you you ruined this for everybody. We're now going to basically unwind that benefit because people are abusing it. And so for an example, like with private placement life insurance, one of the key tenants to private placement life insurance is investor control. So you as the policy owner cannot be the person picking the investments inside of the policy. In order to get all those tax benefits, that's the main issue the IRS says is you can't be the one. So you can't put your private business in there. You can't move your, your private equity portfolio in there. You need to have a, an investment manager p- making the call on your solutions. Well, again, smart people said, ah, there's probably some workarounds and we can create some structures and do some stuff and still get your private business in there. And, you know, the IRS, you, it's can't watch everything and see everything all the time. And so it got to the point where there's promoters were out there at, at exit planning conferences telling business owners, you can move your private business in and doing webinars on this. And so the IRS finally came back and said, fine, this year they said no. Um, and now we're, we're, we're subpoenaing records at all these insurance companies that do private placement. And so far, all they've come out and said is that we're just going to actually enforce the rules we've set from the beginning. We're not going to change the structure. Because if they did, they'd have to unwind whole life and universal life too. But they basically said, okay, no more. We're not going to let this slide. We're actually going to enforce the investor control doctrine. Right. And so stuff like that happens all the time. Same stuff with other solutions like captive insurance. People abuse them. And to the point where they either completely unwind them at all, or they crack down on them severely. And, and to the point where they their biggest tactic is they'll really go after the accountants and they'll basically scare the accountants into believing these things aren't good solutions so that they are, you know, usually the devil's advocate trying to help their clients not implement some of these solutions that are really good in the code. They're right down the middle, but the IRS has basically told them don't do these um, solutions because there's abuse. And again, it's not, I, I, I don't necessarily blame them. Again, these promoters come out there, abuse the rules and go way into the dark gray of it. And um, it's kind of end up ruining it for everybody. So what I'd say is over the last 10 years, the number of solutions available have has reduced into what's, you know, from a tax planning perspective, um, there's fewer of them um, that are available than there used to be. And I think this is why, I mean, look, accountants and CPAs are risk averse. Lawyers are risk averse, right? That's why they're working so hard on being compliant and not getting into trouble. Yes. And I think a lot of these, uh, especially in Canada, you see a lot of these come in. Then you're you're going and you're pitching uh, somebody's CPA to do this, what is considered to be a very risky thing. They've never heard of it. They don't know this advisor. They, you know, they're happy doing their nine to five job and not getting into any trouble. Um, and so, you know, I, I guess this is the major challenge in trying to convince the accountants and the lawyers to work with you. Yeah. Um, how do you go, how do you get over that hurdle? So I think one of the main things we focus on is, you know, most of these solutions that get into trouble with the IRS is when um, what they don't like is they don't like um, strategies put in place purely for a tax benefit. 
And so most of these solutions, that wasn't the initial intent. They just happen to have features that allow for tax efficiency to them. And so when they're sold by promoters for the tax benefits of them, that's where it ultimately gets in trouble with the IRS. So we, when we're speaking with the accountants and the attorneys and the client, it's what's the actual ultimate intent of this solution. So if we're going to do a sophisticated retirement plan solution, it first and foremost has to be a retirement benefit that we're speaking about that happens to have a tax um, deduction to it or private placement. There needs to be an estate planning life insurance benefit to the family to do this that happens to come with a really nice tax benefit to it. And captive insurance is another one. You need to have real risk in your business in order to implement a solution like that. It can't just be for the tax benefit of it. And so whenever we're implementing or in looking at it for a client, first, we're starting with an overall complete view of their world and looking at all the different gaps and opportunities and where there might be advantages for them and gaps. Um, and it's never coming in with, I never, when I meet with a client, I'm thinking, okay, where can I fit private placement in? Where can I fit, you know, a retirement plan? And it's, what is their, what's their overall situation? Um, and what do they, they might not even need any of this stuff. They just might need to update their estate plan and fix a couple holes that they had in there. Great. That's fine. Or, you know, they don't need a super complex asset protection plan. They just need to up their umbrella insurance because that's the one one gap that they have, or they make it really clear. Like, I don't want any complexity in my life. And it's like, great. Like there's limitations to that, but there are ways to still do some things and we'll, we'll help them identify what, what can you do that doesn't bring any complexity and that's fine. And so it's these solutions come only after we've really dove in with them very deeply on what are they looking to achieve as a family and what are they currently doing that's not going to help them get on track to achieve that and what needs to come into the picture to get there. And then these solutions might be a fit. Right. And sometimes it's just you just need a better investment advisor because you're not getting the outcome that you want from them. That's usually not where we start. That's usually not even a part of the conversation. It's usually because of the of the tax um, issues or an estate planning issue. But um, but yeah, these solutions only come come in when we've done the work to look at the big picture first and start with the the outcomes they're trying to achieve. And we end up working our way back to where these might fit. Yeah, it's like a surprise. So when did at the end, end? Oh my God, yeah. you saved a whole bunch of tax. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what are we going to do with all this extra money? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know what though? I feel like I've been in this in this role in my in the past, and I when dealing with estate planning and tax planning, I always felt like a like a physical trainer, right? Where I'm, I'm more of a pep talker. Well, I'm like, we should do these things, right? Do you agree? You should be healthier. You should eat healthier. And if we do those things, you'll, you'll live a longer life, and you'll be there for your children. And there are all these benefits. And they're like, yes, absolutely. All right. So here's the plan. We're going to start doing this. It's going to take you need to send me this paperwork. We need to start working out three times a week. We're going to you create this amazing plan. They're all signed up for it, and then they they don't show up. They don't lose weight, and they don't get fitter. What percentage of the families that you work with actually just, you know, stop doing anything just from pure? So come inertia? to inertia. Yeah. yeah, I'd say it's it's pretty rare because we charge pretty high fees to go through this process. Right, so, oh, it's perfect, just like the trainer. 
Yeah. You paid me a thousand dollars a session, whether you show up or not. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm so sure. That's and, and, and we will always like when we do like so our process to get to that is we will do a whole lot of work up front before we introduce a fee because we don't know whether we can actually bring value or not. And so partly also that we're often getting introduced through the attorney or the CPA. So we want to bring value to them and show them and vet the solutions with them first too. So they're comfortable with us putting that in front of their client. And so we'll already have a lot of their financial data, personal financial statements and tax returns and estate plans. So we've already done a pretty deep review to identify if there's gaps and opportunities. And we be, you know, we often could even quantify what the solutions we would bring to the table would, would mean for them. Um, and so when we're then delivering our fee, it's like, look, our fee might be $100,000 to do a project for the next year to help you fix all of the gaps and, and take advantage of the opportunities. But if you do them, if you do them, it's on you. Well, we, we can put them all in front of you. You still have to implement them when they're there, but we can save you X dollars in taxes. And it's usually going to be a significant multiple on what the fee is that we're charging. And oh, by the way, because we're focused on your business, you can most likely run this fee through your business or at least part of it. And that's a tax deduction. So really I'm already saving you money on your taxes by how we're charging you our fee and, and it reduces our, we get the same, but it reduces your cost um, to, to work with us. And so, um, but now they're paying that fee and oftentimes it's a monthly retainer, uh, to do this work. They show up, they want to get this done and, and implement it. And cause they see, they can actually see the number. And I think and that's one thing that I think we do really well, um, that I see most professionals have a really hard time on, but many of our clients for years, it's rare that we're bringing all new ideas to them. There might mm-hmm. be one or solutions that they haven't heard of or weren't aware of, but most of the time, the updating of the estate plans and even some of the trust strategies that will help them think through and evaluate, their attorney has been talking to them about for years. But what we attorneys just aren't good at translating the value of what they bring compared to the fees they charge to do it. And we get in and say, oh my gosh, you've got all these issues with your estate plan. Let's go, ne- we'll go negotiate a fee with your attorney and I guarantee it'll be a multiple, the, the benefit will be a multiple of what you pay them. So we turn it into an investment. And so the attorneys love us too, because they actually then get to implement what they've been trying to convince them of for years. And so kind of back to what I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm and clients will say this, I'm really good at taking very complex ideas and making them digestible for, again, these families don't come from sophisticated financial backgrounds. Typically they've built this business, they're they're business owners. They're not legal experts, tax experts. They're widget makers. Yeah. And so to, to you know, their eyes just start to roll in the back of their head and attorneys start talking with a bunch of acronyms. They're just like, I have no idea what he's talking about. And they just can't help themselves. They're, they're really smart people and they're really good technicians. And they, it's very hard for them to get out of that mode and speak to a client in a way that they can actually truly understand it. I had the most illuminating experience on this topic this week, our wine fridge broke and the guy came to fix it. The technician came to fix it and he was the most chatty technician imaginable. And, you know, I said, look, I got to go work. I got a bunch of deliverables, whatever. So he calls me down when he's got the news and holds me captive for 40 minutes while he talks about the solenoids. He (laughs) talked about the, the valves that are on specific models of fridges that 
you know, and the, and the compressor and, mm -hmm. you know, touch, go back and touch the fan on the back at the top and the back and the bottom. And, you know, I see there's not, I'm like, dude, I just want you to fix my fridge so I can go back to work. Yeah. <laughs> and I was thinking to myself, I know, I know now how I sit and talk to people and they're like, dude, I could care less about all these yeah. details, man. That, Are you going to make me money over the next 10 years or what? Like that's, that's the biggest change for me in the last three years that's really accelerated what we're doing is this focus on outcomes. And so even our whole proposal process with clients, even evolved in the last two years to go from a 40, 50 page, very elaborate deck and all the advanced planning that we're going to do. And then we still, and half of it at the back is our investment philosophy and it's, you know, beautifully built out and we would still get clients to say yes almost every time when we walk them through that so now when we're typically doing a proposal we put nothing on the screen it's a 15-minute conversation i walk them through three or four general areas that we know we can bring value and what that a value equates to and here's our fee and it's like okay um because it's the outcome that they care so much about and um so one example of that too, and this was kind of in our learning process. So we had a client that came to us last year on December 19th from a CPA and he had sold his business in October. So he'd already has the liquid wealth. So great, right? We have a crack at this guy, but we found out he'd been interviewing advisors for two months and just happened to ask the CPA um, who he was just also engaging, who if there's anyone else he should talk to. So we kind of got through into the mix. And in the first meeting, I'm asking the client, okay, so, um, when do you want this proposal back to you? It's like December 19th. He's like, I'd like it by the 23rd. Cause I want to make my decision next week. Cause I'm leaving the country and I want to have my, all my stuff in place before I leave. In so, place. Yeah. <laughs> decided on and money transferred. Right. And I said, all right. So clearly we're just, he's not really serious, but we're going to treat it just like we would any client. Good practice for our team. It's a big client It's like $40 million. And we, we, we did our, our whole proposal. I had a nice deck built out, but I only went over one page with the client. So we met on the 23rd and I'm just going through all of this, the, the, these outcomes with him. So if you worked with us and we could identify ways to eliminate X dollars in taxes through these different ideas, was that, is that what you would want? Okay. Yeah. If we could help you restructure your estate plan to eliminate X dollar, X millions of dollars in future estate taxes, is that what you would want? Yes. And we got like two bullets in. He's like, wait, wait, when are we going to talk about the investments? I'm like, just, just wait, right? Just we're, we're going to get there. And by the fourth or fifth bullet point, he got it. And he he really understood. And that's what I delivered at the end. Like the fourth or fifth bullet point, I said, okay, so if we did all these things and you implemented and we saved you all these dollars in taxes, I could be the worst investment advisor in the world. And you would still be better off hiring me. And he's like, I get it. Yeah. And he called me on the 24th, Christmas Eve, said, we're working with you. And the next week we got the wire. And yeah. And then you said, but there's more. Yeah. I'm like, we can, uh, we're not the worst investment advisors. We're not, right? I know I'm not. I say that. So I actually think we're pretty <laughs> good at it. But, you know, but yeah. even if I was just average, you would be dramatically better off working with us than anybody else. Remember, yeah. um, remember Kunu? And forgetting Sarah Marshall, right? The surf instructor. Yes. Right? yes. Try less. Do less. Yeah. <laughs> do less. Yeah. No, you got to do something. But yeah. not, that's too much. 
Yeah. <laughs> I'm telling you my favorite, the thing that I've come around to the most in life over the last couple of years that I hated two years ago and I love now is the TLDR acronym, Yeah. right? Too long that didn't read because yeah. it forces you every time I'm like, okay, I wrote this report for everybody. It, it, let's say an internal memo met with somebody. Then I'm going to do like a big report. I, I type it out. I'm like, nobody's going to read this memo. Yeah. Right. So then it forces me to do a TLDR, three bullet points. That's kind of, and then, and then decisions are made, right? Versus shit. I gotta, I gotta put that in my agenda to read Rodrigo's, you know, 15 minute report. Yep. And then possibly make a decision. Nobody does it. It's just like the TLDR is, yeah. is useful. It's like when we used to do financial planning and all these, we, we get the reports of other financial advisors, 54 page, very detailed outcomes. And like, we're very specific, you know, you're going to die at 76 and here's right. what, how much wealth you're going to have, how much of your family. And, you know, nobody reads those. Right. But they, it's like a warm blanket. It felt yeah. good to the client that they, they're not going to read it, but if you, somebody did some work, they, they have, a, they wear a tie, they work, they work at a big company. I feel good about this. Right. And we'd come in with like, well, one pager. And yep. just kind of show and probability of outcomes, try to explain this as best we can. It's just night and day. Like that's the, that was the beginning of trying to make things as simple as possible and trying to explain things with analogies. And, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's a different world once you go down that path. And uh, we're even trying it now with, we're going to put out a video um, maybe in the next couple of weeks, Mike, Adam, myself, and Corey. And we're all going to try to pitch grandma on return stacking. <laughs> Everybody's come up with their own little stories and we're going to see who wins. We're, we're going to put it out for a vote to see if people can understand, if, if, if Granny Jones can understand what's going on with return stacking. That's going to be I a fantastic exercise. I can't wait to see that because I think we we present it pretty well. So I'm, I'm excited to see how you guys do it as well. Um, so I kind of wanted to get into that. So yeah. once you do get a good plan in place, a client comes in, they do have some liquid assets and it's time to invest. You have the ability and the tools to put it to, to invest what you want within that uh, tax structure or that that uh, private placement life insurance. How do you go about explaining? Because how you invest is wildly different than ninety nine percent of uh, advisors out there. So how do you go about that aspect of the business? Yeah. So first, I'll just confirm what Adam was saying as well. Back to the refrigerator story. I mean, most of these clients they don't want to know the intricacies of all the details. They want to know that we're providing a general overview, pros and cons. And the way we describe it to them is like, look, you're successful business owners and families. You can make good decisions if the right information is in front of you. Our job is to still it down so you have just enough information to be able to make the call on which of these are going to be right for you. So, so that's a big part of it. And it's the same thing with the investments, right? So when we get into helping them navigate the portfolio construction, um, first, we start with outcomes. What are they needing this money to do for them? And for the most part, by the time they get to the liquid side of where we help them, they've sold their business, they've inherited money. Um, back to, I can't remember who talked about it earlier, they have $100 million, they're not going to run out of money. They generally know that. Um, and so they don't, they're not trying to get NASDAQ-like returns, right? They're not hoping for 30% a year with an 80% downside potential, you know, when things go really bad. So... They already generally, I think, are prone to want our solution. We just, you, they just need to be helped 
to understand it in a way that makes sense for them. And so um, I, I think we've developed a, a presentation. We've stolen a lot of stuff from you, a lot of stuff from Jason Buck, a lot of stuff from Corey. And we've put it all together, I think, just in a way that walks them through a framework of what the last 40 years has looked like, what data has changed so dramatically that we can't necessarily expect the next 40 years to look the same. And the whole idea of wouldn't you want things in your portfolio that are not correlated are going to go up when these other pieces are going down. I mean, generally speaking, that's the, the, the crux of it in a much, much shorter version of it. And the answer, when we get to the end, we walk them through the quadrants, we walk them through, you know, stocks, bonds, long volatility, you know, commodity trend managed futures. And we say, you know, doesn't this one that has all of them in it make more sense? You know, like, yeah, that totally makes sense. They, they, if you present it right, if they totally get it and they say, why wouldn't, yeah, of course, why wouldn't everybody want to do that? Um, and I mean, we also know that, you know, again, most of our clients are founder led business owners. They're, they're, while they have egos, they're not, um, they're not like the country club investment promoter guy who wants to tell about some crazy investment mm -hmm. that, you know, is amazing. Right. Um, and so we, while they do want unique solutions or they want to know that they maybe have access to things others do not that's always a good story and we have those two we have access to managers that you know if they weren't working with us would be much harder to access and the solutions might be harder to access but most of our clients that's that's not really that important uh, they just want to know their money's going to be okay that they're not going to have to see huge deficits when the market's down and that Whenever they do look at their portfolio, which isn't super often, there's green stuff all that you know. Every time they look at it, like today, you know, yeah. <clears throat> gold flew today, right? So there's going to be at least one or two items in their portfolio that crushed it today, and and so I think that for us, number one, I think there's a lot of reasons why I love all weather slash return stacking or combination of those. You know, it's great for the client. They really like we, you know, and you guys have experienced this, I'm sure, in the, you know, with your funds the last year, you know, 2022, we did fantastic. Our, our models crushed it versus a 40 portfolio. First half of this year, opposite, not so fun. Last few months, much, much better. And net net, when we look at the last like 18 to 20 months or so, we're about the same as a 60, 40 portfolio, but the line to get there was much smoother for clients. And so that's great for clients. They really appreciate that. Um, for a business owner that I am running my business, I don't do it just for this reason. I do it for the clients. It happens to work out that we're typically paid, you know, a good chunk of our, our, our revenue is still assets under management. And so same for me, right? My, my income stream has not dramatically shifted. So I've been able to hire and build my team over the last couple of years where others have had to like make decisions on holding back or not um, around that. So it's, 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 it allows me the flexibility mentally to keep building my business and going after the things that we need to serve our clients because I'm not so worried about a 50% down year in the market. So I think for a lot of reasons, it works um, really well for, for what we're trying to do for the types of clients and for the type of business that we're building. That, that reminds I me of the, um, the uh, story that we, um, in, in, um, in the Resolve Masterclass on actually stewarding very long-lived assets, right? It's very much like 
living in a hurricane zone that we live in, in yeah. the Cayman Islands. And if you're going to live in the Cayman Islands, it and you're going to have a family there, and you're going to have generations there, you are not not going to have a hurricane. You are not not going to have a catastrophic event. Yeah. And thus, people who live here and have made a commitment don't often live on the beach. Yeah. The people who are sort of here for five, 10 years or escaping or snowbird, whatever you want, they love to live on the beach. Yeah. But those who don't, those who have been here and suffered through hurricanes and have had multiple generations here, it's not if they're under no illusion of if yeah. they know it's just when and how do I make sure I'm prepared for that? And how do I domicile myself in the house? And they're like, no, I, I can go to the beach. You'll notice my house is a little higher land and a little bit off. Yeah, and it's it's the same with long lived assets and and ultra high net worth, high net worth. When you transition from, oh, I might not have enough to, oh, I'm going to have enough for a lot. These 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 assets are going to be around for a hundred years. Well, in a hundred years, I feel pretty good about promising you that we're going to have several catastrophic events, whether they're related to war or pestilence or um, uh, of um, uh, 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 COVID pandemics, yep. your assets will be alive and invested during that. We're not saying, hey, you're going to retire at 65, you're going to die at 85, and have a little bit left, and away you go. No, everybody's going to have money for generations. Now, yep. how do you manage wealth? How do you think about the construction of wealth in that construct? I think you think about it much like people who live in the Cayman Islands or you live in a hurricane yeah. zone and have made a commitment to be there for a hundred years. They're like, it's not if they are, they are keenly aware that you know, an 80% drawdown in markets have happened. Like the NASDAQ happened in the Dow yep. in the, you know, 1929 era. And so, yeah, you should be aware. These well, are my, very long lived assets. Well, my foray into this world, how I found you all in the beginning was I read Chris Cole's paper, allegory of a hawk and serpent. And the whole theory or theme behind that was if you had a hundred year portfolio, you couldn't change the components. You could rebalance them, but you couldn't change the general structure. How would you build a portfolio? Now, obviously we don't have, I can't do three X leverage like he would, but you know, it was basically, you have to have these pieces. And that's what, that what got me into the, the rabbit hole of, of all weather and ultimately return stacking was that paper. And that was exactly that theme is, and then it was at the same time as I was getting really into this ultra high net worth world of multifamily generational planning. And that just that concept of, well, what if, you know, there's something like 70 or 80% of assets leave the advisor they're with when dollars are inherited. That's and, what I was going to say. Yeah. And I was like, gosh, how can we build a portfolio and relationships with families where they don't ever have to change the investments? that we can actually have a family conversation about this kind of portfolio construction and they un all generations understand the benefit of investing this way. And yes, there'll be satellites and there'll be, you know, certain families that are, you know, more, uh, you know, philanthropic, there's going to be their foundation and maybe even inside of there, it's, it's, it's invested slightly different or if they were more equity, there, there'll be components that might be different around it, but at the core, you should have this all weather approach, right? Um, and so that's, that really spoke to me and that's really what led me down the path to, to, to build it this way. It was really that, that concept.
what's um what's interesting is like look what you said which i think is crucial and for anybody that's listening that runs a private wealth business and this is the reason that i did it as well is that you're doing the right thing for your clients but you're also doing the right thing for yourself uh, it, it is about smoothing out the adverse scenario risk to your career and your ability to service clients i remember clearly in a way when the credit mm-hmm. crisis began i was already doing all weather I was, I was, I wanted to high five around and there was nobody to high five. Right. But what I did see is I literally saw an army of associates taking over for their depressed advisors Yeah, that couldn't muster up the energy to call their clients and tell them that they lost as much as they lost. Right. It is a dreadful thing to have to go through emotionally. It is a dreadful thing to have to go through financially as a private, as a, as an owner of a business, a wealth business for yourself, for your family. And so, you know, this, the, the idea of balancing off across different regimes and foregoing some of the good luck, right? Also foregoing a lot of the bad luck, to me, just seemed like a no-brainer, but yeah. it's really tough to do. So like, this is what you're saying. I, we just actually did a video on the Return Stacked YouTube channel that, that I, I did. The title was something like, if you're an advisor, a successful advisor over the last 10 years, you got lucky. Yeah, And if you haven't watched it, do take a, a minute to watch it. It's like eight minutes long, but it just kind of goes through how it is that you can just simply, just like by rethinking what you can stack together, how how you can make your life better, how you can make your business smoother, right? So it's not just about the investor. It's also about the advisor and the emotional roller coaster. Because the other thing that happens is if you're going to have an, an estate for 100 years, at some point, if you have an 80% drawdown, it doesn't matter who's around. So one of those kids is going to raise their hand and say, like, what the fuck are we doing again? Right? Yes. And so you're, I mean, you're dead now. So you, you created something and you said, we're going to do all VC investing or whatever. I don't know. Real right. estate, New York, right? At some point, it, your goal is to, have it, to live forever. Well, you're not going to accomplish that if you're just in real estate in New York, right? You really do have to have, if you want it, it to live for 100, 200 years, you have to have that balance. And I just find it astounding how difficult it is to get that message across. But yeah. uh, can I ask you, like, you did a, you that was was that a shift from sixty forty that that paper from sixty forty to this approach to this way of thinking? Yeah, I mean, so we I read that paper, and it was also right as COVID was hitting, and I was like, God, things are getting weird, and I just kept reading it. I found Corey, and I think I read. Um, uh, the cascade um, paper that I forget the name of it. The liquidity cascades. Uh, cascades. Okay. That makes sense too. And all these things seem to be happening and, and the underlying mechanics and plumbing of the investment world is changing and we need a better solution. And um, so that's where, so we made a shift. Like we literally changed our entire business at the end of 2021. We probably moved 60, 70% of our overall client assets into this kind of a framework, whether it's a more conservative all weather or more of the little bit more aggressive return stacking model. And I mean, timing, I mean, a little bit of timing luck there. I mean, literally, I mean, the last no quarter of one was good. And actually the all weather and everything actually performed well in that environment as well. We kept up with the 60-40 and then 2022 hit. And like as the Ukraine war was breaking out, our portfolio was going up and everybody, I mean, we created this huge divergence right and and so clients were just very thankful um from there and and so it's allowed us to have these conversations this year when we haven't been doing as well versus the market um you know we remind our, our clients often 
our number one, our benchmark isn't the market. It's what you individually need to achieve. But of course, it's hard to convince them to not pay attention to that. But we have a lot of grace because we saved them so much last year. And then when we show them the more longer term view of the portfolio, like we're actually the same or better off still, even after the market had that that big run up this year. And I think, you know, big philosophy or a big thing that I, you know, I read a lot and I look from a lot of different angles and, uh, you know, familiar, familiar with the concept of the fourth turning. And, oh, God, uh, are we? Yeah. Don't get them going. So I, I am a huge believer that we're going through that time, right? And I've handed that book out to so many clients and the new version of it that just came out. And um, I believe it's going to get really weird for a while. And I, I don't think we're going to see a period like the 20 years previous where a 60-40 is going to have a smooth sailing. Um, and I'm wanting to prepare clients for that. And however, if I'm wrong, which I absolutely could be, um, I want to have a portfolio that can still do well in that environment too. And you know, the beauty of return stacking is you get to do both, right? And it should do both, right? Obviously, you can't know for sure. But have you read Ray Dalio's? I've only read the title. But have you read Ray Dalio's latest? I haven't yet. Oh, that was a bit of a delay there. Sorry. Oh. Okay. It's like the last two titles of his uh, pieces are absolutely terrifying. Like yeah. it's something to the effect of uh, another step toward, towards the inevitable third world war. <laughs> like, like, yeah, I saw, I saw it. That's I like saw a it. second piece on it. And I saw his post, but I didn't read the article yet. But I saw the kind of his, his headline to it yeah 50 percent chance he said yeah it's two yeah. headlines yeah. yeah yeah so yeah i think the fourth turning concept is um it's coming into play and these are these are where like you, you mentioned gold this is where gold comes into play this is where the ability to short comes into play diversity cash it's just it's it's going to be a wildly different 40 years in the previous 40 years I mean, yeah. we were lucky. We've been very lucky, actually. We're we're all around. You know, we're forties, fifties years old. We've, if you look back, uh, I think um, Bob Elliott put a chart of of the the frequency of wars uh, yeah. in our lifetime has been just secularly low, and now we're yeah. starting to see this ramp up. I'm sure Taiwan's next, right? So all these things that are coming across, it's um, it's time to prepare for sure. The fake this is the I can't remember if Bill Gross admitted or somebody right. else pointed out to him about it, but base I think he admitted that he basically it called him the Bond King, but he just admitted it was his interest rates declining for the thirty years, four years of his career. Like, you know, he just, they started in nineteen eighty two. Yeah, right place, right time. <laughs> yeah, so it, because no one wanted a bond manager job. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's well, yeah. right. The Wasn't the Raymond James story uh, uh, Well, he started financial planning in Florida. Yeah. Yeah. He's like, every day they're going to go yeah. down to Florida it's and retire. Get in front of that wave. So, what do you think, gentlemen? We've been on for an hour and 20. We covered a lot of ground, actually, Homer. This is really interesting. Yeah. And yeah, um, it's been great, Homer. I know we just scratched the surface of what you cover in the book. So, yeah. The plowing all the way through it. I got through a little bit of it in preparation, but there's a lot there. Yeah. And at the, I think that the title, you know, really is what at the end of the day, we kind of described it as what we do. So, you know, our role, the way we see our role for clients is, is 
to distill down all of the complexity and craziness that's out there, um, to put information in front of them, pros and cons, so they can make smart decisions. And we're, we're, we often get asked, well, what would you do if, if you were us? And they say, we, we can't do that. We're not you. Um, but what we can do is we can tell you what other smart families and wealthy families are doing and give you the outcomes that they've created. And that will help you identify which of those really make sense for you. And so that's really what, what that's all about. So I know I'll, well, I have the opposite I'll, gift. My what's gift that? Is there's nothing so simple that I can't complicate it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have, yeah. <laughs> I, I, got the, I, I remember being the, 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 a buddy of mine. This is in Toronto and he, he's, he's like an HVAC guy. He's like a good friend and, you know, talking about the wine fridge and he's like, uh, and I, I'm a, I grew up on a farm. I'm a farmer. I, I, I mechanically inclined and I, I know, I know enough, but I also know I don't know a lot. And he come, Mike, come on downstairs. You got to see the furnace. And he says, look, and I look at it and I go, look, looks like a furnace. I was like, well, you see that there? Yeah, they, sure. That's a crack. I'm like, looks perfectly workable to me. I don't, I mean, is the crack not supposed to be there? Oh, it's a very dangerous crack. I'm like, dude, I, I don't even know what to tell you. You know, when we talk about investing things and you're talking about furnace things right now, I have no idea. You need a little extra commission. You want to put a new furnace in my house? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I on, a, on a separate note, I know you guys usually, because wine, the wine conversation made me think of you guys are usually drinking i think on this show um we didn't really talk much about that today i was under the weather so i but i uh i was preparing so i have this wine i don't know if you can really see it very well but yeah cool so it's a friend of mine in paso robles great he was from our industry he's a wealth manager um and so his first one of his first wines was called ipo nice so it's it's been great for me i basically bought all the cases of his i can because whenever a client of mine sells their business now I, I will, I'll send them a case of that or, or, or some of the, or six bottles, whatever, oh, and I'll go over, there, go over there with them, drink some wine and, and celebrate, uh, celebrate the, uh, I mean, we often become so close in that process, you know, it's such a relief. And, um, so, so yeah, it's fun. It's a little bit of fun, uh, to have with them, uh, with that. So you I would have been, a little fun along the way. Yeah. If I was feeling better, I would have been drinking some of that to celebrate. Yeah. We did a lot. We did that. So we launched this podcast during the pandemic when we were depressed because we weren't <laughs> able to argue with each other as much as we did. And yeah. we just kind of, somebody suggested we do this and uh, have a few drinks after work and commiserate yeah. with everybody else who was locked down. So yeah. we, we drank heavily in the beginning. The <laughs> podcast would get unwieldy at the end. So we reined it in a little bit recently. <laughs> I thought it got really good at the end, actually. Most people were like, God, we should have started it drinking before we were certainly on. feel to us that it got good at <laughs> Uh, uh, anyway, also, so we, we we plugged the book co co Conver Convergent Wealth with a K. Yes, C was taken when I started. Yeah, C was I like the K. I mean, the K is, the K is magic. Um, it worked out for our logo too. Yeah. We had little mountains and some stuff in it. Yeah, it worked out. Yeah, and at at Homer Smith underscore KWP is where they can find you on uh, Twitter. I'm assuming. Yes, X, Mike. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, yes, on X. My apologies. Yes, I'm yes. such a boomer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> embracing the uh the boomer coming and um yeah uh, what else is there www.investresolve.com there we got that we, we talked about the resolve masterclass that's available uh for download on podcasters we've talked about 
uh, return stacking. So it's yeah, been, return it's been stack. great. Com. We're putting a lot of good mm-hmm. stuff there with Corey, basically yeah. one new piece a week. So uh, if you, if you, this is the first time you've heard about return stacking, that's the place to go. Uh, yeah. go to the Adaptive insight. asset allocation is also uh, a phrase that we've uh, coined and uh, uh, propagated around the world. So uh, yeah, now that absolutely. Jason Buck has finally joined us at 5.24 p.m., we can, <laughs> we can give him a little shout out. He just launched a new product that I'm, I'm sure um, everybody will be interested in, which is he's done a lot of all weather. Now he's kind of siphoned off just the protection part, uh, which is a combination of like diversified CTAs and tail protection. Go to a Mutiny uh, website, check that out. Um, shout out to Jason on that. Yes. I, I was Love a well-written you. piece that you sent out, Jason. I like that. I wouldn't know you guys if I didn't know Jason first. So I uh, definitely I love it. Love the work that he's doing. And always remember is always like and share this content so that we can uh, continue to bring awesome people to have great discussions on Friday afternoons. That's right. Like, subscribe, share, and comment. Because if you, especially if you don't like what we're saying, love to have a discussion. You know, we're, we're happy. Any to comment have. is fine. Any comment. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> maybe drink a couple of a uh, couple of IPO wines beforehand yeah that's what you really think sounds good <laughs> beautiful I'll see you cue the music thank you everyone thanks thank you guys. thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast you will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts we also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Resolve Long Horizon Investing Masterclass, a 10-part evergreen podcast series where Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global explore an advanced investment framework specifically designed to steward quasi-permanent capital with humility and balance. From the science of decision-making to all-weather portfolio construction to the value of diversified alpha and tail protection, this series provides a comprehensive capital management roadmap to improve outcomes for wealthy individuals, advisors, family offices, and institutions managing less than $10 billion. To listen to the series or read the transcripts on demand, please visit investresolve.com forward slash masterclass. Alternatively, you can find it on your favorite podcast player by searching for resolve masterclass.